this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey guys, this is John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. If you haven't got your score yet, I'd encourage you to take 13 minutes and complete the questionnaire you'll find at valuebuilder.com. It'll give you your score on the eight key drivers of company value. You're going to learn some different things about what drives the value of your business. You'll be able to see how you performed on these eight unique factors. Go to valuebuilder.com. I can't remember the first time I learned the difference between a want and a need. I can't remember if it was my mom, my dad, my grade eight economics teacher. I just, I can't remember who told me about it. But I think we've all had that experience where we where we get educated about what we need in life versus what we want in life. And my next guest, Dr. Frank Gibson, took that approach into the sale of his company. And when he decided he wanted to carve out a piece of his business and sell it because he'd lost the passion for it, he wrote a list of things that he absolutely needed in the sale of that company, as well as some things that were more nice to have or things that he wanted in the process of selling that business. Getting really clear about what's on your need to have list when you go to sell can help make sure you get a great outcome when you actually go to market. To tell you Dr. Frank Gibson's story, here's the man himself, Frank Gibson. Dr. Frank Gibson, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, no problem. And, and, you know, I'm going to call you Frank, not out of disrespect, but I know we, we know each other, so that's okay. I hope with you. And, uh, oh, yeah. Uh, that's perfect. The next. Um, tell me about this company, Sixth Millennium. What did you guys do? Well, in the late 80s, I saw that there was a trend towards traditional Chinese medicine coming into America. Universities were starting to add programs. Even Harvard was having a, a certificate program for MD. So I developed an integrative medical approach that really was in the forefront of the coming trend of traditional Chinese medicine's entry into America. But often when people, when they seek complementary or, or, or alternative medicine, they typically also refuse proper medical care. Our approach demanded that those desiring to be treated at our clinics include Western medicine and pharmacology when necessary. Then they entered into program of, of herbs and exercise, ongo- ongoing classes. We built a 216-acre health retreat. We ran health programs and Tai Chi and yoga at a, a very large resort. And Eventually, we provide a total health plan that could affect their health problems to the degree that the MD would wean them off the supporting medications. So it was a very integrative approach in lifestyle. It actually became the beginning of what I think was probably the first wellness program to be common in medicine. And it was it was had phenomenal growth and really uh, provided a lot of opportunity, not just for our for our pra- uh, practitioners and our patients, but also as a model for this type of medicine coming into the country. What a fascinating story. So how did you charge for your services? I mean, I'm trying to get a sense of the revenue model. Were you billing insurance providers? Were you billing the patient directly? How did that work? 
Well, when I started in the the clinic in 1989, there it wasn't you know traditional Chinese medicine acupuncture herbology wasn't through the FDA. It was it was an investigative procedure that was their term. So there was there was no opportunity for insurance, but there also was um, you know at that time a fairly low cost, and there was be growing interest in this total integrative approach to wellness. So by 96, we actually were became had become a Blue Cross provider, and they they covered all but about $16 of a of a individual's treatment. But the primary income was from acupuncture. So the acupuncture was was maybe done weekly, sometimes biweekly, far less than we see today. What has happened in in that industry? We had um, relationships with MDs and various types and specialties where we referred the patients out and uh, in a responsible manner. And then we had product sales. We, we produced, um, had products made for ourselves um, for the clinics. We had um, stress product. We had a sleep product. These were all natural, naturally produced products under the highest standards. So primarily it was acupuncture, probably followed by, by herbs and then specialized products. Got it. And so people are coming to your physical, the 216-acre health retreat. People are coming there uh, as a retreat. They're, they're going for days or weeks even. Is that right? Well, that became an integrative part of our educational and lifestyle program, John. But primarily, we had we had clinics. We had um, a very large clinic in a in a very small town in the Panhandle of Florida. Um, we had ten treatment rooms. We saw over ten thousand patient visits a year. So most of the income generation was at the specific clinics. We had one in Atlanta where it, where it actually started, Destin, Florida, and Fort Walton Beach. We had revenue sources from the retreat facility, certainly, and they would those were typically based on five, a three to five day programs that ran uh, six months a year. Got it. So you've got the clinics. Do you, do you own the buildings that the clinics are running out of? Or are you leasing them or how does that work? No, we leased the clinics in, in all the spaces we had. Um, and it... Um, it enabled us to, uh, I think, really enabled us to, through making the choice to lease. And at the time, it was quite inexpensive in that area of the country. But I think the choice to, to lease gave us a lot more opportunity for, for rapid expansion. Yeah, I remember talking to, uh, we had an EO meeting once, a group of entrepreneurs that I was involved in. And one of the guys was thinking about buying a building. And, and everybody kind of <laughs> jumped on him and said, don't buy the building because that's not your business, right? Like that's a separate decision. You can buy the building as a personal financial you know, decision if you want to invest in real estate personally. But you know, uh, you're going to take capital uh, from you know what you're really good at and put it into a business that you're not necessarily good at. So that was the decision you guys made to lease and and, and grow that way. It was, and I didn't know of you at the time, but I I know that you are, are a proponent of of people really understanding that they've got to keep on focus and they get these ideas. Gee, it would be nice to build a bit to have to own this building is a lot different than looking at is owning this building part of my total model. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and we can get in discussion around, uh, you know, the goodwill in your business and, and, and the fact that people buy, uh, there's a difference between fixed assets of what they're buying, like the real estate and the goodwill. And a goodwill is obviously what your business is worth. And it's, it's the, it's, uh, it's the difference between what someone's willing to buy your business for and the fixed assets. So, um, so yeah, the more you can, you can develop goodwill, the, uh, the more you're going to get a return on your investment. So lots, you know, lots of, 
lots of detailed stuff there. But talk to us more about, I mean, this business started, you said in 89. So by 2006, you'd been in it now for 16 years. Is that right? Yeah, we started in 89. Um, we, we got going. We opened the Destin Clinic in 93. Um, yeah, we had we had quite an experience and it, it really was, a you know, it we looked at opportunities and one of the overall views of expanding the business was because this was a new business, people don't know how to market, they didn't know how to make it grow and ours grew incredibly fast based on, we had such strong ed- educational programs. I wrote books on, uh, a book for the patients on, you know, what this is, what you're doing, why we want you to, you know, talk to your MD, why you want your MD to talk to us, or we'll send you to one. And so we had a model that as people entered into this industry, a new industry, they could follow. And and down the road, that was, was part of the plan was to start to license certain things that we had developed in the clinic to be able to tie in for purchasing, to tie in for use of the retreat, um, the, you know, educational programs, seminars that, that we could go out and give. And so it, it really had a, a quite a roadmap that that would go well into this this industry. And we saw things changing. And I mentioned when we first talked that the factor that our business plan proved viable and successful, but the plan itself began to rewrite itself. What do you mean by that? Well, we all follow trends. I think we're all accustomed to to following trends in, in marketing, in sales, in seasonality, and in in every aspect that we can find because these are tools that we need to 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 see to be able to look into the future. And what what I think happened for me and for our business was that we saw an emerging trend in it and we saw emerging trend of people coming to us exclusively for this type of certain treatment and that started laying a foundation laying a foundation for an industry that nobody had even thought of and that quite honestly is is the beginning of the story that that you and I are talking about what was the treatment they were coming for in 19 after 6 years of research in 1993 it hit me that probably about 40% of the individuals, the patients that I was seeing for, you know, the most common things, you got 65 million people in this country with hypertension. You've got, you know, blood sugar problems are horrendous. You've got a lot of problems that are caused by or exacerbated by the excessive use of alcohol. Note that I said excessive use of alcohol. And so you're coming in trying to treat someone who's over drinking, and yet they want to naturally fix their hypertension. They don't want the beta blockers. They don't want the calcium channel blockers. They don't want anything. They just want somehow to do something that changes this. Well, you, you know, you don't start with, with, uh, with the surface. I mean, the root of the problem is what? The root of the problem is fine. You want us to fix this? Then we got to do something about your overconsumption of alcohol. Because quite honestly, I can't do this if you're going to continue to drink three six packs or, you know, or, or 17 drinks a week. So I had had an experience where I had started researching and working on a, on a herb-based compound that had an anti-dipsotropic effect. In other words, you consumed it and you lost your interest in, in drinking excessive alcohol. You might have open your third beer and not finish it. So more and more, 
we started putting this into place because this was the root of the problem for, for many of these people. And John, it grew organically to where we had people coming from all over the country. And that's why I say that the plan began to rewrite itself. So you didn't intentionally set out in 89 to cause or to fix alcoholism as a problem. Not at all. Never thought of it. I had come interest. My interest in plants and medicinal plants is actually more in the chemistry. I, I'm not a big proponent of, you know, grazing through the health food store for, 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 you know, herbs. Uh, I mean, they need to be diagnosed, but we're also, they're inconsistent. But what are plants made of? They're made of phytochemicals. So my interest was, and I'd come across some plants with an opportunity with a, a, a Chinese family that had been doctors for 900 years in China, and a, a herb, list of herbs that supposedly, you know, cured alcoholism. So, I asked if I could have the list. I got it, and I. But I didn't make an herb formula. I explored what are the chemicals in here they're making. Because we can control, we can quantify chemicals. So this was, I would say, as much as a hobby as it was a vocation. I had, you know, I had a good opportunity after my sold, you know, I exited from my first business. Um, I had about nine years off to, you know, study and and do things like this. So I developed this and and put it in '93. And it grew to a very, very significant part. And John, I became aware. I had no idea that, you know, there's 15.2 million people a year right now that don't get treated for various reasons. Uh, we know the reasons for alcohol use disorders. So this is where it started growing. And it also, you know, I think that as we reach different stages of life, and I'm talking incessantly, but stop me if you want. But it's great stuff. I, I, I think that in different stages of life, it can bring a new meaning to business. It takes a you know, it takes a long time to develop any wisdom at all. And I think to learn to pay attention and be aware of what we want in life, separate it from what we need in life, and always be open and fearless to any possibility. I mean, here I've got a successful clinic. I'm going home every day at one o'clock. My son's in, in the business and he's passed his boards and he's business-minded. And I've got a staff that's been with me since day one. And, you know, it's running like a clock. It's really what, you know, I've, the term I've heard is lifestyle business. I really did not have to think much about the day-to-day operations. I walk in and there's a stack of 35 patients and I did my thing and and it was great. But so the possibility, I'd say it, 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 it stirred two things in me. One, this incredible need because alcohol use disorders are the number one health problem in the world. But it's also challenging to like, holy cow, I can, we can go out. At that time, I didn't know if my son wanted to do it with me or not, but we can go out and revolutionize an industry. We can challenge the 1950s style treatment of alcoholism because the product was proving itself over and over and over. And it kept growing and people were coming and being a vacation town with more rental properties than residences. It was easy for people to come rent a place, bring the family, come in. No one knew why they were coming in the clinic and get on the program. And so by 2006, what proportion of your revenue was coming from alcohol uh, treatments? It was reaching about, I'd say, 30 to 35%. Okay, so still 65% from other ailments that yes, people yes, were coming yes. to, but it was a big big part of it. And so in your own admission, you had this very successful business. Your son is in the business. What was the triggering event that made you want to sell it? 
I think just watching the trends. I think a lot of times that we, we you know, it's we're comfortable. And what's the real what's the real aspect of business that any successful person enjoys? What in your experience, what are they really after? Well, I would say freedom. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Freedom because and there's no such thing as a little freedom. And they like the freedom that just the thought that you know what I could go out and do that. I'm I'm smart. I'm you know I could go I could go do this, and it would be and it's I think it's fun for people with an entrepreneurial spirit. Sure, but so you lost my train. I lost your train of thought in terms of what triggered you to want to sell. So just to give us a sense by 2006, sort sort of. What was the revenue of the company? Sort of how profitable was it? I mean, just give us a, maybe a, a bit of the bit of the economics of the business by the time well, 2006 rolled around. Being a service industry, it was primarily, you know, putting needles in people uh, was the primary source of income. Probably, you know, 55 percent of all the revenue. Um, you know, it's it's it, it's quite quite reasonably. Um, Priced in what were service we were offering, we we're way more competitive. You know, we're very competitive with anybody in the in, in the industry, and so you're talking about four dollars worth of needle for treatment that costs eighty five dollars. So how you profitable? Oh yeah, it's very profitable, and and you know we had a fairly large staff because because we the support was necessary. It 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 the doctors spent plenty of time with the with the patients, but you know the going before they went in the rooms when they came out you know it's a different therapy that no people weren't used to and if you ask me why the business was successful i'd say it was because of clients patient support and education so the trigger was that wait here's a trend happening that is extremely needed it inspired my my compassion to be able to solve it inspired my kind of character of, hey, you know, this could be really fun. It went, you know, I have to say, I don't like to use the term because I have a lot of respect for what I did in that clinic, in those clinics. But, you know, at a certain point with a business, you're kind of a janitor. Mm -hmm. You know, you're just kind of making it go. And there's not really, there was no, there really was, there was challenges in expanding it. But as I saw the expansion and I started also realizing, and this is a key trigger, John, I saw that, it wasn't controllable. In other words, my first industry, I built a chain of luxury restaurants in three states, 10 restaurants. And, you know, the first, they had to all be the same, which meant you had to have all the things in place to, to make it work. They weren't built around a personality. They're built around an operational guide and how you responded to every situation, how you did this, how you budgeted, how, you know, all the things that the management on all levels needed to know. In a clinic business, you, you, you have the de uh, potential problem of it becoming a personality-based business. And certainly that's part of it. The patient has to have confidence. But if you want to duplicate something, you have to make sure that number 10 is the same as number one. It is good or you, you start to bring the whole thing down. That was another trigger in me looking at this as I brought in more people, as I brought in more doctors, I opened you know, the third location. I realized if I'm going I'm to take this out and I'm going to, you know, have something that's workable and keeps the same standards. And I started to doubt that that was possible. And that was, that was also joined by my interest in, Hey, this is a great quote lifestyle business. I'm, you know, I'm pretty happy here. I'm making all I want. It's a good, it's a good basis for my son's future. So that was a trigger also. So talk about 
your son and and his role in the company, did you contemplate, did you talk to him about his appetite to, to buy it from you? I did because he was a young man. He passed his boards and I'm very young at age, just had barely turned 22. He came into the clinic. He, he, I brought a very famous physician in to the company from China. He, he interned under him 4,400 hours. He, you know, it was, he had a really good sense of business about how to organize the company and organize the clinics. And I, and I asked him, I said, look, I'm, I'm really seriously contemplating taking the alcohol out of here and, and starting a company and manufacturing and you know basically and that's another issue is I was looking at a company where I could control everything and we do from harvest to safety seal through marketing and and support and as in in the clinic business it's also a danger in the restaurant business the last guy I need you know the thing I needed was a guy in Detroit with a great personality and you know I he, he leaves or I get rid of him and, you know, that affects the restaurant. So I asked my son, I said, do you, do you want to do this with me? And his response was that as a young man at 24 in a very small town where he knew most of the people that were coming in there and had known him a good part of his life, he felt that he wasn't emotionally equipped to handle that responsibility of seeing, you know, in his words, he really wasn't aware there was this much sickness. And then he also is extremely mechanical and, and he, he really wanted to get involved with the challenge of making the product in the form that it is now. And, and he's largely responsible for that. So I'm really glad he came with us. So when you, so, so for people who don't know your story, uh, you, your idea was to separate the clinics and the wellness, uh, business from the production of the alcohol cessation formula and sell the clinics as a standalone business. That's a, that's very astute because that's exactly it. My exit was different than most might experience because I needed to retain certain proprietary proprietary assets that had grown to be a large part of the of the clinic's income. And this being the herbal uh, recipe for the alcohol cessation product, right? And it, and it was a complete program, John. It was a you know it was a video it was a videotape at the time. It was a DVD of of certain exercises. It was diet. It was a family component. It's it's it was an entire program. Got it. And so, to what extent did you feel like you were you were you were basically taking the secret sauce out of this clinic business and trying to sell the the kind of leftovers? Oh, I was totally aware of it. And I, you know, and I was revealing about it. And I think that in, we go into any negotiation, the first thing it, in my, as my experience is you need to know exactly what you want and what you need. And, you know, it, there were a list of things that I wanted and there were a list of things that I needed. And in the negotiations, I mean, the clinic, I was shocked at how fast it sold because compared to almost any other clinic in the country, no one was anywhere near the volumes that we were producing. And it was, you know, for someone that wanted to go in as a single practitioner, um, you know, even with the loss of 30% of the business, it was still an astounding, probably three times what anybody in this country was doing in a traditional Chinese medicine clinic. And of course, that's not what we had, but that's how someone with a, a new license or, you know, an experience in another clinic was looking at it. So what was on your list of wants and what was on your list of need? List of what I needed was clear. I needed all the aspects of the alcohol program. I needed all the rights to it. I needed to to um, separate it. I wanted the name of the clinics, but um, 
I was willing to give it up, but I knew that when I went in there. I sat down, I said, why is this important? And is this something I, I want? Yes, it is. It would be beneficial, but it's not something I need. What I, I knew that I, I made a list of things. I knew that I, I needed to have this done in a manner that I got paid for the clinic and wasn't dragging payments from some guy that might go in there and do something you know that was um, going to damage the business. So in other words, you wanted cash up front and not some sort of vendor take back or some sort of deal Correct. where you were getting paid on a, on, a, on a note. Okay. Okay. And did you have a number in mind in terms of the cash you wanted for the business? I did because I had I knew what I had been working on on this movement towards our, the new company and I knew what I needed to build a to build a laboratory and to do a, we we intended to spend a, a full year at least on on continued research and manufacture the product we was so we were as far down the road in terms of our financial planning as in we went to uh, in fact it seems a little odd of this say it, but we went to Bulgaria to test market and kind of hide out because we knew what we had was, was extremely rare and we didn't want anybody, you know, to get ahead of us in, in this. So what was the number you had in terms of the cash you wanted up front that you needed to get for the business? $450,000. And that would give you enough money to, to fund the, the next stage of research into the product? Exactly. That would get us to the point where we had launched and sold the first batch of product in Bulgaria. Got it. Okay. So talk to us about the next step. So you'd, you'd worked on your list of wants and needs. Uh, you'd, you were clear that you wanted to separate out, carve out the, the alcohol cessation program uh, from any sale. What next? Did you hire an intermediary? Did you take it to market yourself? Like, how did you, what steps did you take next? We took it to market ourselves and we were, we were just completely shocked. We, we marketed it through you know, at that time, there were um, emerging acupuncture schools. Um, the, the, to pass the boards, you have to have uh, two years of pre-med and four years of acupuncture school. And so these people are getting degrees, having no idea what they're going to do with them. In fact, most of them, within five years, even today, 50% of them have, are not in practice any further. So, but they all had, you know, this, these ideas, they could do it. And so we went, we literally sent um, kind of grassroots program to, to every college uh, and university in the country and to acupuncture schools that this opportunity was there. We, um, we went on free business sites, uh, free business business listings. We use trade publications for alternative medicine and traditional Chinese medicine. And all of it was handled at absolutely no cost by our administrator, who is amazing at digging out, uh, you know, these types of things. Did you put an offering price on the business? No, not in the listings. We put, we, we, we put the, the listing, and I should bring this up, but let me finish this sentence. We, we put the listing as the Destin Florida Clinic. And we listed the volume that clinic was doing at the time, which was 500, I think in 2006, it was uh, headed for 600,000 when we put this listing out in August, uh, early September of 2006. That got a lot of people's attention because no one dreamed that you could have a clinic of traditional Chinese medicine with that kind of volume. $600,000 in revenue. Yes, sir. And, and why didn't you advertise them as a collection because you still own the Atlanta clinic or, or well, it, maybe, yeah. I was changing the Atlanta clinic in nature to something that was very, that was of, of interest to me and tied into my alcohol program. The other clinic was, um, actually, uh, less than 15 miles away, but we were so busy 
and it was near the a very large Air Force base, and and I felt that it, that anybody that bought it would would probably be well advised to combine the two because they weren't, you know, they were mostly we figured to be a single practitioner, which which it was. Got it. So you're you're out there marketing to the schools and the, the various websites and so forth. Tell us the next step. You got offers for this business. What was, what were they like? Yeah, we we started getting offers, um, and we got offers from from a variety of sources. We had you know completely alternative people that somehow I guess thought they could capture our patient groups. You know, people that I mean, you, if you there's a lot of people that practice medicine and don't have a medical license, and and I guess it's legal. I'm not really sure, but you know, naturopractics, and then and there was chiropractic medicine had started exploring. Some of them were exploring acupuncture, so we we're looking. You know, they were looking at us, and so we kind of went through a process of of screening. You know, uh, screening people in terms of do we really want to go down the road with them? Because obviously we wanted the, the business to stay successful. And ultimately, we were approached by a gentleman who had um, two of his own clinics in um, in um, upstate New York, and he he wanted to relocate, and he had a buyer for his clinic, so it was kind of perfect. And you know, he, it was it literally was a ten day closing. So it was so fast that my attorneys had, you know, we were signing. The guy was signing every document possible to like, hey, you know, we, you haven't done your due diligence. And, and it was it was quite amazing. I think it was it was definitely meant to be. So talk to us through that. And I, I apologize for getting to the mechanics. But again, our listeners are very curious about all the kind of machinations and details that go into the actual sale. So, you, so you're talking to this guy up in New York. Does he send you an offer letter? Um, like what, how, what did that look like? Well, I, I really feel like, and when you go in to do anything, you know, like say if you, you, you meet someone in the, the, you know, a gathering and then they seem of interest to you. It's not like you go in there and exto- expose your life story. You kind of want to get to know them a little bit and like, do I want to actually have lunch with this you know, person? Or, you know, you kind of feel your way into it. So I find it best to get one-on-one with people. And when you can, in a non-negotiating point, when I was in the, my other industry, the restaurant industry, you know, I would interview people and, you know, you you must be the most amazing guy on the planet in an interview, but you had to do it, but I'd get them interview and you do all the stuff and they got the answers and then you take them out to dinner and you invite the wife and, you know, you learn something. So I invited the this gentleman and there were other people, but he intrigued me because he had a pocket full of cash. He had sold his two clinics. He was had he was exiting. He had a certain amount of time. He had to stay there, and it was coming to a close. His wife actually had some type. I think it was an asthma where she had to be in a more humid. The winters just really killed her. So it was like wow. So I invited him. You know, flew him down and. We, we, you know, we just went, went around the clinic for a couple of days. We talked to each other, we, you know, we socialized and, you know, it, it, he had good experience and he had a, a great education and he was oriental and, you know, that helps. It's <laughs> kind of, you know, uh, I got blue eyes and didn't really fit the Chinese medicine thing. But so he, and then, then it came down to, you know, the price and, and that was a negotiation that at that point was based on a certain level of trust in the business. He had seen enough. I wasn't, you know, dumping the books out on the table. So before we talked about price, we, we set up a, a due diligence of, you know, taking a look at, at revenue and he didn't see where we purchased, you know, things. He didn't see anything proprietary or exclusive to the clinic. He was aware of the revenue from the alcohol program and he really didn't want any part of it. 
He felt it was too complex and it wasn't what he knew best. Smart man. So we entered into a period of due diligence and then we sat down and we discussed the price. And take me through that conversation. Did you put a number on the table first or did he? I didn't. I, I said, you've, you've sold some clinics. You obviously have some cash and, you know, you're, you're walking in. I mean, this place is, I mean, this, this clinic in Destin State, it, it was booked two months in advance. And I knew the volume would drop off because you know, I'm a strong personality. I'd been there for all those years. And so we started by, you know, finding out what he could do. And that came down to basically what he had gained from his sale of his practice. And it wasn't close. It was, it was off about $200,000. So what, what, did, what could he do? Well, he offered to make payments on it. And, it. and at that point, I had enough knowledge of knowing what he wanted in, you know, out of the business and and so for example, you're going into a new thing and do you want the whole place to exit? No, you've got, you've got an administrator that's been there since almost day one. We had the, the person that ran the Erm pharmacy had been there for five years. So one of, one of the points that, that I got the price up, which was a stretch for him, was saying, look, I'll, I'll talk to these people. We'll make an agreement and this person will stay here three months. This person will agree to stay here one month and train a new administrator because the administrator actually went into the new company. So we use points that were important to him and unimportant to us to be able to, you know, uh, the, the guy told us the number, obviously, I was assuming that wasn't the top dollar he could go. So what did you end up selling the business for? We sold the business for 475 You got your number. We got our number. And what proportion of the 475 was up front versus, you know, in payments? We took, a, we took some payments, but they were quick payments. We gave him, um, we had two quarterly payments to make up the difference. So we were on the hook for about, I can't remember exactly, I think it was $120,000. Got it. And so the, the 120, um, you know, for folks who haven't gone through this, was there a note involved, like an interest rate that, that uh, the buyer was, was paying you over that time? There was, there was a very powerful um, note because it was secured by all the assets of the Six Millennium Corporation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Got it. Got it. So if he had defaulted on those payments, you would have received your business back. Exactly. But he didn't. He came true, I'm assuming, on those business on those payments. And- he did. And ultimately, the volume diminished. And ultimately, I, um, you know, somebody else bought it. And I don't know. You know I didn't pay attention to any of that. But um, he got a good fair deal. He inherited a business with a lot of cash flow. And, you know, we... I think we were successful in what we're looking for, as I think I mentioned earlier, is that we knew exactly what we needed. We didn't get the immediate cash that we needed, but we also knew that we can make up that difference to in in to in over the year that it was taking for us to develop this new lab, develop the product to the to the polyphytoceutical product that we now have, and to get it to Bulgaria and test launch it in Sofia. And so you were able to to get that cash and pull it out. And and talk to us about was there how did you feel about the business of acupuncture? It, it, I can tell by your what I'm hearing uh, through the, the the intonation of your voice is that you you have a great passion for the alcohol cessation business, the the the, the procedure and the methodology you developed. 
I'm not hearing the same thing about running acupuncture clinics. Yeah, it's a good observation, um, especially since you can't see my face. Uh, it, you know, I don't miss it at all. I was watching, see, my background was in very traditional Chinese medicine, which since in, even in the 50s, you went to a hospital, if you had a problem, you went in and you, got, and you got Western medicine. The Chinese sent a third of all their physicians all over the world to learn Western medicine because Mao Zedong wanted to you know, modernize the country, and he did. And so you would do that, and you go to the other end of the hall, and you'd get an acupuncture prescription if you wanted. You'd get a diet, you'd get, a, you'd get a, an herb formula, and you might be taught some exercises. And so that's what I sort of grew up in in my early observation of, of traditional Chinese medicine, which I was exposed to in 1972. Uh, through a Chinese master and and then studied it very traditionally, not in this country. So I was watching, you know, for example, universities that had programs for for acupuncture uh, certification and there was no internship. How can you learn how to understand lupus from a book or, you know, or learn how to diagnose? And so I was watching a really a uh, decline in what the standards and how this came into the country and it was done by people who really did it traditionally as has been done for 6,000 years, hence the name six millennium. Um, and, and the, you know, it was turning more into sell them as much acupuncture as you could because it's, you know, at the time when I was charging $85, the national average was over 125. And so the, the tendency went away and it also went away from actually curing people. You know, I was had the most successful clinic of its type in this country because I got rid of my patients as fast as possible. I made, gave them opportunities to, you know, we were tied in in Destin, for example, with a 3,000 acre Gulf to Bay resort and a health club. And, you know, there was a, there was a, a, a total approach of, we want to support you. We gave $120,000 a year to that community for people who needed help. We know we couldn't get insurance, but in 96, when Blue Cross started, we became a provider, we could. But the, the whole interest in this, in this business was, there was a passion and it's not treat people's symptoms, but get to the root of the problem. And that's what's carried over into the new company. And yes, I'm not a big proponent of acupuncture. Okay. I had a, uh, my clinic in Atlanta, and actually the reason it wasn't included in the sale was I did no acupuncture in it. And you could only get in there if you had an incurable disease. And it was all lifestyle. It was all, you know, herb formulas. I only saw my patients once a month. Um, I developed a wellness clinic there that, that quite honestly, I think I'm going to have to do until I, until I go to heaven because these people are like, you know, I've got people in a lifestyle program, a wellness program, John, that have been with me for 23 years who were presumably terminal they had serious illnesses <laughs> and they got whatever their chronic migraines their hepatitis c their crohn's whatever they had is then they're like wait a minute i don't want to stop doing this how do, and that's actually again the example i mentioned earlier how sometimes a business plan writes itself that started happening and i said but you don't need to come here anymore well i just want you know can't you can i just come and you tell me what imbalances i have and you keep me going and and that's that's a serious fun to watch somebody that you've been seeing every month for, the average is probably 15, 16 years now. And see, that's, that's the love of what I do now. Because when I change one person's life, I shouldn't say me, when we change one person's life by taking this threat of a lifetime of misery with an alcohol use disorder, 
you know, and everyone in this country knows, it affects 15, 20 people around them. Hmm. Talk to us about the the health retreat. You mentioned out of the gate that you had a 216-acre health retreat. Was that part of the sale? Or, and what, what, I'm no. Okay. Yeah. And there were discussions about, you know, wanting to continue to use that. And, you know, that, that wasn't, uh, the, the purchaser wanted to know if that was, you know, an important part of the clinic and if that was available and how much it generated. It wasn't, it wasn't generating a, enormous income. It paid the bills. And, and um, we built that and we built a large lodge and it was, you know, it's beautiful mountains in North Carolina. And it was, it was really educational and people would come up and there was, it was sort of like a five star, you know, it wasn't one of these retreats where you just went in, you were crammed full of information. There was great support materials. Sometimes we bring people in from the outside for certain things, but that also laid the foundation foundation for our five day pre-treatment experience, as we called it for the people that were entering into our alcohol program. We eventually, um, partnered with 14 clinics, as I mentioned. And so, but they first came to the retreat. Got it. Got it. And so where do people find you now, Frank? What's the best way for us to, to reach out to you? Well, our product website is the lastcallprogram.com. Lastcallprogram.com, all one word. And it really is, the, the marketing company has done a great job because I think when you say it, it's not transactional. It's help oriented. Everybody on our on our staff has has years, decades of experience, or they've they've gone through the program themselves. Our medical director went through the program and called me and said, "I want to work for you." Hmm. So that's to be clear, uh, Frank. It's lastcallprogram.com. Yes, sir. And we'll put that in the show notes that you can get at builttosell.com. Frank, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to learn about your business and also your life's passion. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you, John. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.